If you would, you can go ahead and take your Bibles with me and make your way over to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, we're going to pick up right where we left off last week. As you head over there, I just want to throw this out there. You know, there really are only two types of people in the world. Loaded statement, right? You can say any number of things after you make a division like that. What I'll say this morning is that the two types of people in this world are those who know when it's time to celebrate Christmas and those who do not. I belong to the camp of the people who do, right? Like if it ain't December, it ain't time. Okay, that's how this works. There are some of you out there who don't have that opinion, and I just want to know, uh, I love you, but you're wrong. I don't understand how you're supposed to sit down at Thanksgiving and prepare to eat turkey and dressing and pecan pie and watch the Lions lose a football game while the Christmas tree is twinkling in the background. Like, I you, that's okay. I am willing to give yourself over to that. That makes no sense in my mind. But If that's you, that's okay. I am more sympathetic with you than I am with another group of people because there are some people, and you may be in this room, I don't know, but there are some people who manage to get really excited about Christmas in July. What in the world is that? Like, can anyone explain that to me? How did we get here? Whose idea is that? Let's go back to the Hallmark movie deal for a minute. We'll just return there for a moment. There may be some of you who in this room managed to watch a Hallmark Christmas movie marathon during the month of July. And I just want you, after service, to come and tell me how you do that. I mean, the air conditioning is running 15 degrees behind. It's 97, feels like 105 outside. And you are sitting there watching a Christmas movie with snow and fireplaces and love stories. I just, I can't track with you. I I don't get it. So, Uh, In order to avoid any reproach that would fall on this church, at least from myself, uh, we have managed to delay our exploration of Christmas until safely the month of August, not to be affiliated with any of that other stuff. But here we come this morning. And I hope as we do approach this text, as we pick up in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, and consider the birth of the Lord Jesus, I hope that regardless of where you fall on that spectrum, regardless of when you think the appropriate time to celebrate Christmas is, I hope that we can all agree. That for any of us who love the Lord Jesus, this is one of the most important things we could ever consider at any point in the season, perpetually. And so here we are this morning. We've watched last week as we see this description of the Lord Jesus coming as the culmination and the climax of this long line of sinners to redeem them. And and this morning, we're going to see the way in which he comes. So would you read with me, beginning in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, uh, we, your people, are gathered here right now trusting that your book lives. So, Lord, we pray that you would make it live to us right now by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Well, uh, as Matthew continues his story of Jesus this morning, continues to tell us about Jesus, where he picks up is with Joseph and Mary. 
you know a good deal about Joseph from last week. I presume we saw him at the, in, in verse 16. Here's Joseph, and what you learn about Joseph this week is some new stuff and some old stuff. We get see this reiteration of the fact he is the son of David. So he rightly belongs to this line that we saw described last week. We know that. We know he's the son of Jacob. We've got that. The thing you learn this morning is there's a, there's a development in Joseph's life. Joseph is in a romantic relationship with this woman named Mary. So Joseph and Mary are in a relationship, and their relationship has reached this state that we call betrothal. Betrothal is really interesting. If you are reading a different translation, you might see something like espoused, or you might see something like engaged, or you might see the phrase uh, pledged to be married to. I think that's what the NIV uses. That's a pretty good translation because, here's the thing, uh, betrothal doesn't really match any of the normal phases that we typically have in romantic relationships today. It's kind of like engagement plus. So this couple is engaged, but that engagement is then legally binding. So you're going to see words used in the text this morning like Joseph being Mary's husband. And you're going to see words in the text like they're going to have to be divorced because the only way to end this pledge to be married relationship, this engagement plus betrothal relationship, is by divorce. So you're going to see that word used, and it's used rightly because, again, this is legally binding. But again, what keeps it from being marriage is this hasn't been consummated yet. The couple does not live together. They don't sleep together. So it's not a full-blown marriage. There's this period where they're pledged to be married, haven't been married yet. That's where Joseph and Mary are. And if you're listening to me carefully, and you're kind of reading between the lines here, it's going to set you up really well to see the problem. Because if Joseph is pledged to be married to Mary, he finds out Mary is with child. How'd that happen? How that happens seems like a really common sense question, right? What do you mean, how did it happen? There's only one way that happens, right? Somebody slept with somebody else. Some man slept with some woman, right? That's how this happened. Maybe you're a literalist and you're saying, well, Thomas, modern newfangled medical technology has come up with a way to make that happen without actually the physical act. And so uh, just to appease you, let me just say, some man's biological material got crossed with some woman's biological material, right? Can we concede? That's how every pregnancy in the history of the world ever has happened. That's how this works. How'd that happen? It wasn't Joseph. We see really clearly from verse 18 that this is from the Holy Spirit. She's found to be with child, and this is from the Holy Spirit. Maybe that takes us back to our original question. How did that happen? Another evangelist, Luke, he tells us that the power of the Most High is going to overcome Mary. How's it happen? You're waiting on me to answer that question in a way that's really nice and clean and succinct and answers all possible questions that you could have and tells you at a biological level how all this works. You're just going to have to keep waiting, right? I don't, I don't have some of those answers. This is a mystery. It's a miracle. It's a supernatural mystery. In fact, as I prepared to preach this text this week, I found out I have even more questions than I realized I had prior to this week. But regardless, what the Lord wants you to know what you need to know to have saving faith, to be on a trajectory to understand who Jesus is, is that Jesus has no biological paternal lineage. So the fact is, he has a full-blown, 100% human DNA profile, yet he has no physical, biological, paternal lineage. That's really important. That's really important. Why is that really important? Because if Jesus has a physical, paternal, biological lineage, guess what? He's a sinner. 
He's got a sinful nature. He'd be just like me and you. He's not in a position to come and atone for me and you because he himself would have been born in sin, but he does not. Why? Because this is from the Holy Spirit. This is no natural baby. He's 100% man, yet he's not a natural baby because he's also 100% God. This is from the Holy Spirit. Me and you know that. We know that. If we have eyes of faith, we see that by the time we get to the end of verse 18, and we know with great confidence, okay, nothing illicit has gone on here. You know who doesn't know that? You know who's not aware of that by the time we get to the end of verse 18? This guy named Joseph. Joseph's not aware that that has just happened. Verse 19, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Yeah, uh, Joseph, not aware. You know, we spend a lot of time, uh, me and you, you and I, when we think about the Christmas story, we a lot of times do that for Luke. Luke gives us a really long description. And we'll ask questions sometimes like, Mary, did you know? You know how I know that? Because we sing songs about it, right? If you were here in our candlelight service this, this past Christmas, you remember? Alyssa sang a song for us. Mary, did you know? I got up, opened up Luke chapter 1, and I actually asked some of those questions in the text. Try to answer them. What, what does it look like Mary knew? It's very interesting. It's fun to think about. Mary, did you know? But what if we just flip the script for just a second and ask the question, Joseph, did you know? Joseph, what did you know? And here's what Joseph knows, according to verse 19. He knows how... Pregnancy works. He knows how babies are made. He's, away. He's got answers. That's what he knows. And he knows she's pregnant. And he knows he didn't have nothing to do with it. And so he makes the really rational, logical decision that probably most people in that situation would make. You know, it's probably time. Like, I got time to get out of here. And I probably should. Joseph, just man, he's an upright man. And so he resolves, I'm going to get out of here while I still can but I'm going to do it quietly. I love this woman. I care about this woman. He's very out of pocket for this woman. Didn't see this coming from this woman, but he's hurt, he's confused, and he says, I'm going to get out of here, but I'm not going to put her to open shame. You see, the penalty for what Joseph is suspicious of, or I guess relatively convinced of, by the time we're sitting in verse 19, it's really, really serious. The Old Testament, according to Deuteronomy 22, says that the, the, the legal responsibility could be to stone her. By the time we've made it to this point in the first century, the typical practice is for this divorce to happen in an open way that puts Mary to public shame. That's what you would expect to happen here in the first century. That's not what Joseph wants to do, though. Joseph has no desire to do that. He wants to put her away quietly. Let's just slip out of this thing. But we learn from verse 20 that he continues to think on this. This is all weighing on his mind. So here we go, verse 20. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph. Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So here we go, Joseph pondering these things, thinking about what all is going on here. Right? I assume that would be a logical thing that would weigh on your mind if you were a young man who thought you were about to be married to this woman you loved, and now you're not going to all of a sudden. So he's thinking on it, and as he's thinking on it, the Lord sends him. An angel, the, Lord, the messenger of the Lord, comes and delivers a specific message to Joseph. And that message says, Joseph, don't be afraid. Joseph, it's not what you think. Like, Joseph, I know you think that based off of how you think about every other pregnancy in the history of the world that's ever worked. Like, I know you think you know what's going on here. But, Joseph, I just want to tell you, you don't know what's going on here. 
And so, Joseph, what, what I'm commanding you to do is to take Mary as your wife. Again, I know what you think. Like, I know what you think has gone on, but that's not what's gone on. So the command that makes absolutely no sense to you, if you look at this with just your fleshly eyes and say, would I do this? It makes no sense to you, Joseph, but I'm asking you, I'm commanding you, do it. Take Mary as your wife. It's not what it looks like. Here's actually what it is. Joseph, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Ah, so now Joseph has the information that me and you have. We were aware of that from verse 18. Joseph doesn't know that in verse 19. Joseph is made aware of that in verse 20. Joseph, not another man. Joseph, this is something very unique. As you try to process through what's going on using your lens of every pregnancy that's ever happened in the history of the world, right up to the present moment, this ain't that. This is unique. She's with a child, and she's with a child from the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, if you want more proof than that, how about we get a little bit more of a, a detailed description? Verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Joseph, I'm not just going to tell you she's pregnant. I'm not just going to tell you this is from the Holy Spirit. I'll go ahead and do a gender reveal. She's going to have a son. And she's not just going to have a son. She's going to have a son that you're going to name Jesus. And she's not just going to have a son that you're going to name Jesus. You're going to name him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. How about that for a description? Like, Joseph, if you want to know whether I know what's going on right here, right now, or not, how about that for information? She's going to have a son. And you're going to name him Jesus. And you're going to name him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. Save them from their sins. If you remember last week, the long list of things that we're trying to remember from the Old Testament, things that we're waiting, like things we're waiting on that we haven't seen fulfilled yet, at least when we depart from the Old Testament, when we close the book on Nehemiah, if you remember, one of the things that we're waiting on is for this promise that there's someone coming to crush the head of this serpent. The serpent who in the garden introduces humanity to sin, lures them into sin, causes Adam and Eve to plunge us, the whole entire human race, into sin. We're still waiting on that one who's been promised is coming to crush his head, coming to deal with Satan once and for all in the proclamation. Right here in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 is, he's here. Here he comes. You've been waiting for thousands of years on that serpent slayer, the one who's going to come and deal for Satan, deal with Satan for once and for all. He's on the way. Here he comes. He's in Mary's womb right now. It's him. It's Jesus. That's good news, right? That's exciting news. That's got to be fascinating to these people. But the challenge is, is that what they're looking for? You're going to watch people all through the book of Matthew, starting really soon, who, who miss this, who overlook Jesus. Because they have a false assumption of what the kingdom is going to be like, they miss the king. Because the king, according to verse 21, is coming to deal with their root problem. And their root problem is their sin. What they most want deliverance from is the effects of sin. Our problem's Rome. 
Our problem is we are oppressed. Our problem is we have all these political things going on in our lives that make it just really hard for us to function. There's these pagan people. They're sovereign over us. They rule over us. They make rules about how we can and can't worship God. And if we can only be set free, if we can only be liberated from under the thumb of the Romans, everything would be right. It'd be fine. Now, me and you, right, we don't directly relate to them. In some ways, maybe me and you, we're kind of a spoiled people. We could say things like, you know, as we, as time goes on, the world seems to be more antagonistic to what you and I believe, to what we proclaim, to what we profess. We could say things like that. There's some truth in that. We, many of you could bear witness to that. I feel that. I've seen that happen over the course of my life. And, and again, there would be some truth to that. But if we just take a real sober look at our situation, these people's situation, we got it pretty good. We've got it really good. But just think with me. Let's just imagine it would be pretty easy to think like that, wouldn't it? Like if, you, if you've been this people and, and your history was defined by being enslaved to people who didn't like you and didn't like your God and actively worked to keep you from worshiping your God, wouldn't you think that if you could just get some political freedom, maybe everything would be okay? Because their history so far, like again, David was the highlight. David's the only freedom they ever experienced, and then David blows it, and after David blows it, it's not very long until we're in exile, so you see God's people off in Assyria, and you see him in Babylon, then Persia takes over, then Greece takes over, then Rome takes over, and here we are. This is their entire history. They had a little span of good days right here, and then David blew it, Solomon blew it, Rehoboam blew it, and it's done. And they're just tempted to say, oh, we just want the good old days. If we could just go back to the good old days where we didn't have to wake up and read the paper and see which world power is destroying us today. If we could just get out from under the thumb of these people and have our liberty back, we'd have a real good shot at actually doing this thing. Maybe we could keep the law. Maybe we could do the right thing. Maybe we could be more faithful. Maybe we could do better. But verse 21, this Messiah they're waiting on, he's concerned about the root problem. And the root problem is not the Romans. And it turns out it wasn't the Greeks either. And it wasn't the Persians. And it wasn't the Babylonians. And it wasn't the Syrians. It wasn't even the Philistines. It wasn't even the Egyptians. That's not the root problem. Their root problem, God's people's root problem has always been that they are sinners. And they are sinners before a just and holy and righteous God who will by no means clear the guilty. And somebody's got to do something about that. Verse 21 says, he's coming. Verse 21 says, he's here right now in Jesus. But you're witnessing as the Holy Spirit conceives Jesus in Mary's womb. What you're witnessing is the fact that God has taken up flesh. You see, they know. The Old Testament people, they know. They know as they look at their Bibles. They know, hey, we're waiting. We're waiting on that serpent slayer. God, we got you loud and clear. You're going to send a Messiah. And when you send this Messiah, he's going to come and he's going to deal with this serpent. He's going to deal with the fact that we've been plunged into sin. Like we're waiting. He's going to deal with the devil once and for all. We got you, Lord. We're loud and clear. We trust that he's coming. We're waiting on it. We trust you, Lord, loud and clear that the Messiah is coming. The one who's going to come. That's going to be the fulfillment of this promise made to Abraham. That there's going to be a child given to him from his offspring through whom all the nations of the earth we're going to be blessed. Like, we know that. We trust you, Lord. Got you loud and clear. We're waiting on him. We trust it, and we're waiting. And Lord, we know, Deuteronomy 18, there's going to come. There's going to be a prophet who's going to be greater than Moses. 
When he speaks, it's going to be your words. Whatever he says, you're going to require to the people who hear him. Lord, we know he's coming. We trust he's coming. Gotcha, Lord. We're waiting on that Messiah. We know. We know the Messiah is coming. We know that there's one coming who was the fulfillment of this promise made to David, that there's one who's going to sit on his throne, who's going to reign over the people of God forever and ever. We're waiting on that Messiah, Lord. We got you. We trust that he's coming. You've said he's coming. We're waiting. We're waiting. We're waiting. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, tells us really clearly He's here. And, plot twist, it's God himself. They knew the Messiah was coming. They didn't know he was God. It's a brand new introduction into the storyline. The Messiah is here and the Messiah is God. God has taken up flesh to do what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Now, me and you, right? Again, uh, hindsight, not to our advantage here. Because you hear me say that and you're like, duh. I've always known that. I'm a New Testament believer. I've read the New Testament before. Like, I know that. But again, these are some of the first words of the New Testament. These, these words are written to a people who only knew the Old Testament. A people who we watched really recently who are working through this thing saying, we just got to keep the law. We just got to do the right thing. We just got to be more faithful. We just got to do better. That's the way they've been processing through this. Turns out that's not, that's not what they need. That's not what Jesus has come to do. They didn't know that this is what was going on. They didn't know that they had to have God in their place. Me and you know that. We know that the sin problem is a problem between us and God. And so guess what? The parties who need to be reconciled are us and God. So what we need is someone who comes, who's legitimately divine, who can represent us before God, and someone who's legitimately human, who can represent us before that God. We need a divine Messiah. We have to have a divine Messiah. If me and you will be saved, it's going to be through a divine Messiah. The New Testament tells us that really, really clearly. A lot of these people thus far have missed it. The Jews to this day are missing it. But Matthew goes on to tell you, hey, the doubts have been there for you to connect all along. Look at verse 22. All of this. All of this has took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. What you just see right there is a direct quote from the prophet Isaiah. It's from chapter 7, uh, verse 14. Me and you have not spent a lot of time in prophecy thus far since I've been here. Don't worry. We're coming. It's on the way. But what you need this morning to be able to understand, to just get what's going on here, is prophecy works typically on multiple horizons. Here's what I mean by that. Sometimes, so Isaiah the prophet is speaking in this instance to King Ahaz. Isaiah's ministry is to the kings of Judah. We see a lot of them actually in Jesus' line up here in the earlier part of Matthew chapter 1. We talked about some of them last week. So Isaiah will come and he'll prophesy to them and he'll say stuff. Sometimes he's talking about stuff that's going to happen that day. Sometimes he's talking about stuff that's going to happen the next week or the next month or this time next year. And he'll say, look, you need to do this. You need to repent. You need to change this. You need to fix it. Boom. All that stuff. He'll say stuff like that. And then sometimes he'll say stuff and you're like, huh, that's really interesting. That sounds kind of pregnant. That sounds bigger than right here, right now, God dealing with Ahaz. And so that's what happens in this section of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. 
trust you know that's bigger than what's going on right there with Ahaz. And I think you know that factually because it's in Matthew 1. And Matthew says, yep, this is about that. But the section's bigger than that. And I trust you know that because I've looked at the banners in this room before. I know you know that. There's stuff going on in this section of Isaiah that's bigger. Because chapter 9 says, for to us a child is born. And a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That looks bigger to me than what's going on right there, right then in Ahaz. And it's ultimately going to be fulfilled in Jesus. Matthew says that really clearly. But he's saying the dots have been here to connect the whole time. Like you saw this coming. All of that was pointing you to Jesus. And what we've seen now in Jesus is that God has come and he has taken up flesh to do what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. He's here. He's come. The Holy Spirit has conceived him. In Mary's womb. Now, his name's Jesus. What's in a name? What's in a name? There's a lot in a name. I trust you know that. We've spent some time in the Old Testament. We've read through some names. There's, names mean things. Especially when God gets involved. And God gets directly involved and explicitly says, like, hey, your name's going to be such and such. That name means something. Take Israel, for example. Take Abraham, for example. When God gets involved in the naming process, those names mean something. But what does Jesus mean? Well, Jesus literally means the Lord saves. And that word that kind of underlies that root word Lord there is the word Yahweh, the divine covenant name that God reveals to Moses. Exodus chapter 3. Yahweh, which means something, it translates in our language, something very close to I am. So Yahweh saves. The covenant name of the Lord, Yahweh saves. You say, well, why would you tell me all that? Why don't you go into all the linguistic stuff that we're English speakers, we don't really understand? It's important because if you read it really carefully, there's a rub. The messenger says, hey, the child is going to save. But you're going to name this child Yahweh saves. So who saves? Is it Yahweh saves? Or is this child going to save? Because you said, Yahweh saves. We've got to name the child, Yahweh saves. But the child is coming, save his people from his sins. So who saves, Yahweh or the child? And the answer is yes. That's how this works. That's why that phrase, Emmanuel, which means God's with us, is so important. The biblical name, Emmanuel, is the logical conclusion when you see Yahweh saves plus the child's going to save. That must mean the child's Yahweh. God is with us. God has taken up flesh to do what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not and never could and never would have done. And so then me and you and everybody else and across the rest of the whole book of Matthew is going to have to figure out how do we respond to that. Like what, We didn't see that coming. 
This is a new entrance into the plot line here in the divine drama that God has enacted where he's going to save people from their sin. This plan of redemption that we've now entered into is a brand new entrance. God has come. He's taken up flesh. Here he is. He's going to deal with his people's root problem. How are we going to respond? And the first response that you see in the book of Matthew right here to this news is Joseph. And it's a response of faith. Look at verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. He called his name Jesus. So Joseph wakes up. He wakes up from this dream where he's been instructed by the message of the Lord. That's going to come back, by the way. We'll see that again in just a couple of weeks. And in case you want to make sure one more time that Joseph was not involved in any of this process, verse 25 helps you out again. He continues to know her not until she bears a son. It has nothing to do with Joseph. Nothing physical here has gone on, and Joseph is not responsible for, at a biological level for anything that's happening here. But then something really important happens. So Mary bears her son, the son that Joseph had nothing to do with. But then Joseph called his name Jesus, as he'd been commanded to do. And in naming Jesus, Joseph is claiming Jesus. When Joseph says, this is my son, I'm naming him Jesus, what he's saying is he's mine. Like, he belongs to me. I'm take, Yes, it's hard to say how many people knew an adoption had just happened. But an adoption has just happened. And in Joseph naming Jesus, what we see signed, sealed, delivered is the fact that because now Joseph has named him and says, he's mine, I'll take him. Guess where Jesus legitimately belongs? The line of Abraham, the line of Judah, the line of David. Because Joseph says, I'll name him name of Jesus that I've been commanded to do. Joseph responds. He responds in faith. And so God's plan to redeem his people from their sins is being perpetuated by Joseph responding in faith. How will me and you respond? What we've seen this morning is that the Lord has personally gotten involved in salvation history to do what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. And he's done it by conceiving this child, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the Virgin Mary. He's been supernaturally, miraculously born. And here he is. God's taken up flesh. He's dwelling among us. How could you miss it? How could we miss it? The same way these Jewish people miss it. We can miss it the same way that these original hearers missed it. We can miss it because instead of realizing that our root problem is sin, we could say Rome. I mean, salvation from sin is great and all, but Jesus, what we really need is like political deliverance. Like we want liberation, but they've never attached the idea of liberation to liberation from sin. They keep attaching it to liberation from the effects of sin. Like, can you just get us out of Rome? We just don't, we don't need a Roman anymore. So in getting caught up on deliverance from the effects of sin, they miss God's provision of their, their forgiveness of their root problem. The fact that they are sinners before a just and holy and righteous God. And so me and you, unfortunately, face the same obstacle. We face the same challenge. 
Because what me and you see is we look around and say we want deliverance. We want our lives to be better. We want, like we're looking at things that are the effects of sin. And we're trying to deal with them. Oftentimes ourselves. We live, I don't know if you know this, in a Walmart world. Most of our problems, like most of the things that plague us, we immediately look around and say, like, if we could spend more money or we could put our hands on it or we could touch it or we could see it or we could look at it or we could go to the store and pick it up, like, we could solve that problem. And that consumption mindset, like, if we can just get it, if we can just get this thing, if we have more buying power, if we had more money, we could fix more problems, that, that consuming reality for us that me and you live in, we're encasing, characterizes the world around us can make us blind to our real root problem because our real root problem is not that we don't have enough money or not that we don't have enough buying power, not that we don't have enough stuff. It's the fact that we've sinned for a just and holy and righteous God who will by no means clear the guilty. Me and you live in an entertainment addicted world. I don't know if you know that. I don't know if that's a newsflash to you or not. But we're people who oftentimes surround ourselves and say, if we can make ourselves busy enough, if we had more screens, if we had enough screens, if we had enough stuff to do, if we had enough stuff we could go do, like if we could do enough interesting stuff and make ourselves into interesting enough people and convince the world around us that we really are pretty cool and we really are pretty special and all that good stuff, we just kind of forget about our problems. We're in an entertainment-addicted world. But our root problem is not that we don't have enough screens or that we aren't interesting enough or that we don't get enough time to do cool stuff in our lives or that we don't get to take enough vacations. Like, that's not our root problem. Our root problem is we've sinned against a just and holy and righteous God who said, I will by no means clear the guilty. And we desperately need somebody to do something about that. Me and you live in a world that revolves pretty heavily around relationships. We often define ourselves by our relationships. How do I relate to my family? How do I relate to my friends? How do I relate to people who are online who aren't really my friends, but I pretend to be my friends? And if we could just invest enough in that, if we could just figure all that stuff out enough, like if I could make my relationships good enough, I could probably forget about a lot of my other problems. So we spend time defining ourselves by, oh man, my real problem is that I'm not married. Or my, maybe my problem is that I am married. Or maybe my problem is that my friends don't like me enough. Or I have too many friends. Or I don't have enough friends. Or whatever. That's not our root problem. Our root problem will not be fixed by relationships. Our root problem can only be fixed by our relationship with Jesus. Our root problem is we are sinners and sinners before a just and holy and righteous God who said, I will not through the guilty. We desperately need somebody to do something about that. And Jesus comes, and he does. He does it by living in our place. He does it by going to the cross in our place, which means on the cross what he's doing is he's taking the wrath of God. So what's happening is God is not clearing the guilty. God is looking on him who is innocent and counting him guilty in our place. He's taken our guilt so that me and you don't have to bear it, and he's fulfilled the law of righteousness so that me and you can have his. Friends, that is the good news. You would hear that this morning and say that's unfathomably good news. And then Jesus turns around and says, and yes, all you have to do is have it is trust me. If you'll just stop living for yourself and you'll get out of your kind of Walmart cycle and you get out of your entertainment addicted cycle and you'll get out of thinking all of these other relationships in your life are more important than your relationship with me, I'll fix the problem. I will do it. Just lay it down and I'll take it. And you hear that and you say, oh, that's great news. That's fantastic news. That sounds so great. And that would be true if you knew what your root problem was. But if you think your root problem is the fact that you aren't good enough and you don't do right enough and you aren't faithful enough and you could probably be all right if you just do better and you could probably be all right if you could just consume a little more and you'd probably be all right if you could find a way to entertain yourself a little bit and numb yourself to the reality a little bit more and you'd probably be fine if you could just fix your relationships a little bit more, you'll miss it. Jesus is not here to fix the effects of sin right now. He will 
He will be when he comes the second time. But this first time, Jesus is here to deal with the root problem. And the root problem is me and you are sinners against a holy and just and righteous God who will by no means clear the guilty. Has your guilt been cleared in Jesus? Do you have confidence as you sit here this morning in this room that I am right with God because Jesus Christ has lived and died and rose in my place so that I would be? His righteousness has been conferred to me because I treasure him and because I trust him. And the fruit of that is I'm a new creation. I have new desires. I have a new heart. I want to live for him. Friends, is that you? If that's not you, I pray that you would trust and treasure Jesus right now. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, we thank you uh, that we get to see Jesus' coming this morning. We get to see Jesus' birth. It's been foretold. The prophets declared it. Lord, you told us you were coming. You told us the Messiah we were waiting on was coming, and you even gave us arrows to show us that the Messiah we were waiting on would be you yourself. And so, Lord, we thank you that Jesus has come. We thank you that we've got to behold his glory, glory as the, of the only begotten, full of grace and full of truth. And, Lord, I just ask right now and for the rest of our time together in this book of Matthew, Lord, that you would help us respond rightly to him. Lord, that you would bless us as we strive to cast our eyes towards Jesus. Lord, if there are people here who've just never cast their eyes towards Jesus before, Lord, who've never uh, trusted him with all that they have, who've never treasured him in their heart, Lord, I pray that you would grant that gift. I ask it in Jesus' name. Uh, We're going to have just a brief uh, hymn of response. I'll be down at the front worshiping with you guys. If you want to talk to me or pray with me about anything,